This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 9. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, the program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We got a fun one for you today. We're joined by a longtime friend of the community who shares his experience as a naval aviator and law enforcement pilot. And of course, if you haven't already, go back and listen to episode eight. We had a great time with Yogi, who is a bit of a character, as many of you pointed out in messages on Facebook and an email. Speaking of email, we received a question here from Sam here, and he's got a question for us here. He says, uh, for Army aviation, is there such thing as exchange pilots? For example, in the fixed-wing community, I've heard of Navy pilots going to the Air Force and flying and vice versa. I was wondering if there was a thing for the rotor community, also uh, for swapping of countries. Uh, short answer is not that I'm aware of as far as inter-service, so I've never heard of any like Army guys going to fly at the Air Force or, or vice versa. There may be some agreements going on between the Navy and the Air Force that I'm just not tracking, but uh, yeah, I've never seen that. As far as internationally, uh, I know I have seen guys go fly Apaches in the UK. Uh, I think when I was a 58 guy, we had uh, some slot in in Australia. And I have seen Australians uh, certainly flying in the U.S. Army. In fact, uh, one of our future guests is uh, a Chinook pilot who who flew with the 101st. Um, but it's not nearly as, as prevalent as you see in the fixed-wing community, so... But uh, we really appreciate you sending us that question. And uh, for those of you who have any questions, you can send them to us at questions at com. Or if you're lazy like me and don't like all that typing, you can check out our website at com and click on our link to send us questions. While you're there, you can check out links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as visit our Patreon. If you feel compelled and have the ability to financially support us, we greatly appreciate it. And of course, you won't go home empty-handed. All of our patrons get early access to episodes, and our mission pilot and flight lead tiers also receive access to bonus episodes, which are essentially a second interview with our guests where I get them to tell a cool story or share a candid conversation with me. Lastly, you can also support us via your podcast provider by clicking on whatever fancy like button they have and leaving a comment, as those greatly help the channel grow. Well, I think we can go ahead and transition to today's guest. Again, he's a great storyteller, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing his adventures as much as I did. Uh, So stay tuned, listen in, and we'll catch up with you afterwards. All right, everybody. We got Doug Russell on the line with me. He goes by Doogie. How you doing, Doogie? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. Just having a cup of coffee and uh, looking forward to hearing some of your stories. You know, we've been talking for a few months now. Actually, we I guess we met yeah. you know, kind of before the show even started. But um, yeah, once I got this started, I, I definitely wanted to reach out to you. And, and uh, you've got some some pretty interesting experiences. And, and of course, anyone who flies a, a civilianized Cobra. Uh, is definitely someone I want to I want to talk to. So absolutely, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and sure. together where you're at. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'm from all over. I grew up in a Navy family. My dad was in the Navy for 28 years. Uh, so moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, was a brat, and then uh, went to. Went to college at Oregon State University and went through the ROTC program there. And uh, once I was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy, I, I got selected for flight school. Uh, 
went out to Pensacola, Florida, went through flight school, got uh, winged in 1988, and uh, went to the fleet uh, almost immediately. And uh, I flew uh, the Navy version of the 60 Blackhawk uh, called the Seahawk, the SH-60B version. Uh, it's called LAMPS Mark III. Um, LAMPS Mark III stands for Light Airborne Multipurpose System. Uh, the predecessor to that aircraft was called the H-2 uh, Sea Sprite, uh, also did that particular mission. So the way these squadrons work is you have about 10 aircraft in a squadron, about 300 to 400 people, and you break it up into little detachments and send them out to the small boys, uh, what we call uh, the cruisers, destroyers, and frigates. So you'll send a detachment of one or two aircraft and about 20 or 30 guys out to sea on those small ships. And uh, I did that for about 20 years um, as a Lamps Mark III pilot. Uh, did some shore tours as well, doing some other things. But uh, um, I can talk to you about the mission in a bit. Um, and then following that, I, uh, I finished my, my career out at Naval Air Station Fallon, where I was the executive officer of the base out there and also the commander of the uh, search and rescue squadron out there. Uh, those last four years in the Navy, I was flying the... UH-1 November as a search and rescue aircraft out of Fallon doing uh, high altitude mountain rescue uh, on the Navy's training range out there. And then, uh, and then I retired. I retired, uh, I was recruited a little bit before I retired by the Washoe County Sheriff's Office here in Reno, Nevada um, to be their chief pilot. The, the guy who was in the job was getting ready to retire. So um, they recruited me in there and uh, I flew with them for 10 years, flying um, basically stripped down civilianized OH-58 AC models and uh, the HH-1 uh, Hotel, which is the Air Force version of the single-engine Huey. And I can talk to you a little bit about that, too, if you want. So did that for 10 years, did a lot of cop stuff, uh, went through the academy um, to learn how to be a cop, and then uh, they stuck me out at the hangar. I did that for 10 years. Uh, a lot of search and rescue, a lot of firefighting, and, of course, a lot of chasing bad guys. Mm. And then uh, I retired from there in February of 2019, uh, and now I work for a major defense contractor based here in uh, northern Nevada, uh, doing, of all things, cybersecurity. Uh, and... Uh, that's about where I'm at right now. I, I still fly. I have my own aircraft that I fly. And I also fly a Cobra helicopter, like you mentioned before, for a museum out of Carson City, which is about 45 minutes south of uh, Reno. Wow. Well, that's a pretty uh, pretty impressive lineup there. Yeah, it, it keeps me busy, you know. I like to keep it uh, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So you said your dad was in the Navy. What? Mm -hmm. maybe, I don't, maybe you mentioned it and I didn't catch it. What did he do? Okay, my, my dad was in the very first class of naval flight officers, so navigators. So he was in class one of the Navy's NFO program. It's called Naval Flight Officer Program. And he was a uh, basically a TACO, they call it, the Tactical Air Coordination Officer in P2Vs and P3s. So he was the guy who did all the tactical stuff for chasing down Soviet submarines. Did a lot of chasing uh, Russians. I did the same, uh, and that's one of the missions we also did in uh, Lamps Mark III. Yeah, it's family business. Yeah. Uh, did that 
did his job and his career inspire you or was that something just independent that you wanted to fly? No, it, it absolutely did. I, you know, I'm one of those guys I was lucky enough to know that I, what I wanted to do from the very beginning, you know, I, I just remember my dad leaving and jumping on an airplane and going off and doing great things. And, yeah. and that, that pretty well inspired me. I knew from the age of about three that I wanted to fly. Um, so that's, I pretty much, uh, everything I did from that point on was kind of geared towards getting into the cockpit of an aircraft. I really didn't care what it was as long as I was flying. So that's, that's kind of how that happened. And, and, uh, I went, uh, when I, when I left, uh, my dad was still in the service when I was commissioned. So my dad commissioned me, which was pretty awesome oh, yeah. and, and also winged me. So me and my dad have, uh, overlapping, uh, service, which was pretty cool. And, uh, so I went to, to flight school in 87, early 87, January of 87. And by April of 88, I was winged and, on my way. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So, uh, when you went out to the fleet, you know, you were talking about this way to previous guests that kind of, cause I never understood that how the structure was, you know, cause I knew that sure. put helicopters on these little boats and I, but I'd never put any thought into it. Like, well, how do they get there? So, so you have a squadron and then they kind of split it up and put some guys on this ship and some guys on that ship and then maybe right carrier or something like that. Yeah, correct. And in fact, the, uh, it used to be, called HSL, Helicopter Anti-Submarine Squadron Light. So I was in a bunch of different HSL squadrons uh, before they transitioned to what's now called HSM or Helicopter Maritime Strike. Mm. So when they went to the HSM concept, they also uh, split the squadrons into two different types. Basically, um, there's the type that deploys on small ships. It's called an expeditionary uh, squadron. And then they have ones that also go out on the carrier. So, for instance, when you've got a carrier battle group going to sea, you'll have the squadron based on the aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. and they'll bring all their aircraft and all their people, and then they'll farm out uh, individual aircraft and personnel to the support ships around that battle group. So, mm -hmm. let's say I'm on the you know the Teddy Roosevelt battle group. The squadron is based on the Teddy Roosevelt. That's where the skipper is, the squadron CO. Yeah. Skipper and XO are there. And then the department heads, the O4s, uh, lieutenant commanders in the Navy, um, they go out as department heads and detachment officers in charge to the smaller ships. And they'll take one or two aircraft with them and a bunch of maintainers and, and air crew with them and then operate from those smaller ships to support the battle group and do that uh, power projection from the sea. Okay. Cause the Navy always confounds me. Like there's always so many <laughs> still confounds me too, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, for the rest of us, we kind of hear these terms. We're like, uh, what? So, so let's a uh, department head. Cause I've heard that many times. I'm trying mm -hmm. to equate that to something that makes sense to me. So that is essentially like a, I don't know, a company command or a detachment command or something. Yeah. So, uh, I know in the Army, in the Air Force, in the Marine Corps, that's the first uh, rank that wears the scrambled eggs on their cover. So it's a field-grade officer, right? So that's uh, the Navy is one of the few services where their O4s don't have the scrambled eggs on their cover, mm. on their hat. You know, So it's a field-grade position. You're one step below a squadron CO when you're doing that. Um, and it's equivalent, boy, you know, I, the, the army confounds me. So it's hard for me to, 
to correlate it to what you guys do, but I would imagine it's a it's a guy who's who's got enough experience where he can run a group of dudes on a ship. So the here's the hard part about that job. So you're a detachment OIC is what we call it. Mm. And you're on board a ship who the captain of the ship is an O5, or it could be an O6. Yeah. That's another weird thing about the Navy. You could be a lieutenant, you know, an O3, and still be called captain because you're the boss of the boat. Right, yeah. But So the, the captain of the ship is typically senior to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an O5, and your squadron commander is also an O5. So you're really working for two different bosses. You have an administrative commander mm-hmm. at that point and also a operational commander. So a lot of times there's some conflicting requirements from the bosses. Right. Yeah. So you you're 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 playing a lot of uh, go between to try to get things done. So I I guess there's probably not a a direct correlation. You know, if we try to say, well, it's just like this. There's probably nothing, but um, but I can see in. certain situations particularly deployed i've seen situations where you you would have somebody that's in charge of kind of like an outstation where you've got some aircraft there um Mm -hmm. i I would imagine these department heads don't have uh ucmj authority over their guys they do not okay that's correct so uh in fact i've run across that where um i've had a guy who did some bad stuff and he was taking a mask what we call ucmj or captain's mask Um, which is, um, you know, non-judicial punishment where the captain, you know, a captain at sea has a lot of power uh, in the United States Navy. He can basically put you in the brig and feed you bread and water. No kidding, bread and water uh, for as long as he wants. So, um, yeah, when you're detached from your squadron and you're assigned to that ship, that commanding officer of the ship is now, he has NJP authority over you and your guys. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for those listening, we're, we're throwing a lot of terms, and this is not the uh, the legal podcast, but, but we're kind of going yeah. down that yeah. lane because I've always been curious. <laughs> but we're talking about the Uniform Code of Military Justice and then uh, non-judicial punishment, uh, as you just determined. But, yeah, just trying to make heads of what, you know, what are the authorities that these people have. But um, to, to continue to pull that thread of these little detachments. Cause I've also wondered this too. So if I've got like a carrier battle group, I've got a carrier and I've got a couple, I guess, cruisers and destroyers and, and things. I mean, what is the, what is the benefit to having those aircraft on those smaller ships? If they're just going to be with the carrier anyway, or do they just kind of branch out sure. potentially and do stuff? Or is it just to, to spread the wealth? Yeah, well, I mean, well, that's a great question because, you know, when you think of the Navy and you think of a battle group, you're looking at a picture, you've got a carrier and a bunch of little ships steaming around it, right? Yeah. You know, that's the picture that you see when they want you to see their picture. Mm. In all reality, you're going to be 80 to 120 miles away from that carrier. Oh, wow. Uh, operating uh, not completely independently, but you're going to be away from that ship. So we're like an outer screen. Okay. Uh, a lot of a lot of people call the smaller ships missile sumps because, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a missile or battle, uh, you know, somebody's coming in to take out the battle group, yeah. they're going to hit the outer ring first. So what we do in Lamps Mark III, uh, the light airborne multipurpose system, the SH-60B or now the uh, 60 Romeo community, is we go out and we look for submarines, we look for surface vessels, 
and we are kind of like the outside fence from the carrier. Mm. We prevent people from breaking that ring and getting a shot at the aircraft carrier. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So the smaller ships are screening for the big one, and then you're essentially adding to that screen and, and increasing the, the visibility. So exactly right and what you know a lot of times we have a radar on the on the 60 so we will launch out there and we will provide all of that data to the carrier via our data link our data link goes back to the ship and then the ship sends it to the aircraft carrier with the link 16 uh and that kind of fills in that big picture for the guys on the carrier so they know where everybody is and what they're doing yeah so let's talk about the, uh, the aircraft itself. So you said the the Bravo model of mm-hmm. the Seahawk, um, which as we were talking beforehand, they've I guess they've upgraded quite a few times since then. But you know what was the the capability of that aircraft? So I assume you know as you just said, it had some sort of radar. It had a Link sixteen, um, sure. which is a, a digital linkage. Uh, I assume it had the ability to drop a, a buoy in the water and a sonar buoy sure. or something. And um, sure, but what else? So we, uh, the, the 60B that I flew could carry 25 sauna buoys. So for uh, your listeners who don't know what a sauna buoy is, it's a probably about a three to four foot tall canister, about four inches in diameter. Inside of that canister is a long spool of wire with a hydrophone on the other end of it and a little antenna on the top. So you you punch this thing out of the helicopter, it goes into the water, it kind of floats on the surface, but this the wire spools out from it, hmm. and then you've got this hydrophone, which is basically an underwater microphone, and it listens to sounds. So what happens is when the sauna buoy hears a sound, it sends that up to the helicopter, and we analyze that sound to determine what that sound is coming from. So... Uh, without getting into classified information, basically different ships and different submarines produce different frequencies. Uh, so let's say, you know, the Red October is out there uh, hunting down uh, the fleet. We can identify the class and more of that particular submarine based on the sound that it is putting into the water. Okay. And what we do is we will set up uh, a field of sauna buoys and we will track that submarine, uh, always trying to maintain what we call attack criteria. So we want to make sure that, you know, if the bubble goes up and we're going to war, we can very quickly put, you know, ordnance onto that submarine, mm. which leads me to another device that we carry, which is the torpedo. There's a lot of different models of torpedoes. Uh, Mark 46 was the main one, and the Mark 50 torpedo were the two main ones that we carried. Um, But basically, you have to make uh, certain criteria to put that uh, sonom, uh, I'm sorry, the torpedo in the water, and then the torpedo will go active and start actively hunting that submarine. And it's got a shaped charge in the the nose. So when it hits that submarine, it it basically punches a hole into it, and that's that's going to ruin your day if you're a submarine guy. Yeah. So, particularly the deeper they are, the the worse that is. Yeah, submarines so, are just not a thing that I want to be anywhere involved no, in. <laughs> nor I. You know, it's just it takes a special breed. Yeah, for sure to want to do that. So we carried sauna buoys, we carried the torpedoes, we also carried Penguin and Hellfire missiles. 
Um, you know, the penguin is a flightless bird, so we used to joke about that <laughs> because the, the penguin missile was a million-dollar missile. Hmm. So how did we end up with this thing? It was made by Norway, and uh, somebody somewhere made a deal for a trade of F-16s for penguin missiles. So the Norwegians got F-16s, and we got their crappy missile. <laughs> But uh, um, and I apologize if there's any Norwegian listeners out there. I'm sure your stuff's much better now. But back then it wasn't so great. So uh, basically, what this missile would do, and it was a big missile, uh, it could really put a hurt on a ship. Uh, this thing would drop off the rail. It would light up and go down range, and it was kind of like a miniature harpoon missile. So you could set in uh, a waypoint into it. So it could come in off axis oh, wow. on whatever target you've got. Uh, and the way we would do that is we would go out and we could uh, determine location of a ship using radar, um, which we had on board the aircraft, the APS-124 radar. Or we could also use uh, ESM, electronic surveillance countermeasure type stuff. So we would get a signal in and we would... Uh, basically create a fix by moving in reference to that signal and then uh, hopefully that will uh, give us a good enough fix to get a target put in place and then go from there um, yeah i'm looking at i I'd look it up while you're talking i wanted to see this penguin i've never heard of that and uh, that is a weird looking missile yeah it's it's kind of it's a beast too i mean when you look at the size of the missile yeah compared to the i think the thing weighed like a thousand pounds i don't remember off the top of my head but they were a million bucks a pop, so we, you know, it's not like we were rifling those things off like Hellfire. Yeah. Um, yeah. As the com community progressed, we moved into the Hellfire missile system, uh, which is a great system, I think. Um, the downside to the Hellfire missile system is the standoff range. Mm -hmm. Typically, anything I'm going to shoot at is going to shoot back at me, and typically, if I'm going to use that, it's going to put me into that threat envelope. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that... That usually is not a good thing, so we try to avoid that if at all possible. Yeah. Um, How many Hellfires could you guys carry? Uh, four. Okay. So we carry the M299 launcher, typically on the port uh, stub wing of the 60, and we could carry four on that thing. And we would have a flare uh, pod up front on the nose. And uh, in just a little uh, trivia, the, the FLIR pod that we used on the SH-60B was the same FLIR pod that was installed on the F-117 Stealth Fighter. Interesting. So it had a, a laser system in it, um, obviously, for painting the target. Um, the thing about that laser system is that it had a, a nominal ocular hazard distance of about 60 miles so you know and it's a class 4 laser which means it could really put a hurt on you you don't even know you're getting your eyeballs burned out yeah. by the thing so uh, it's a pretty dangerous uh, device mm. uh, and you know obviously it was designed to shoot straight down through the atmosphere not horizontally like we were in helicopters yeah no that's a good point so you could carry four of the hellfires but you can only carry yeah. probably one of the penguins one penguin yeah. and that was it and you could carry two uh torpedoes oh really two okay yeah uh, one on each side and you could also carry 25 sonobuoys max and you can't reload them in flight you have to land to reload them sure. so they're externally loaded there's a grate on the uh on the port side of the helicopter with 25 holes in it and you'd shove them in there and then you could fire them out okay it was pneumatically fired so is that kind of it's probably uh, I, I actually just saw that on the same picture i was looking at with the uh, penguin but i'm imagining that's 
somewhat like the volcano launcher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, very similar like that. And and I didn't know anything about the volcano until like two days ago when I saw it in a picture. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I looked it up. Yeah. yeah but, for, uh, for listeners, the volcano launcher is a, a mine dispensing. Uh, it, it sits on the side of the aircraft to shoot everything out to the left side or, or the port side, as a Navy guy might say, but uh, just launches little, little mines. Um, but yeah, it looks somewhat the same. I don't know if it's quite the same device, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we could also carry cruise surf weapons. So we'd have like uh, the M60 or a 50 cal. We even got a gal on there, uh, mm. which was pretty beastly too. I, I will tell you, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be uh, attacked by my attack uh, pilot friends in the community. But uh, the more I hear about the Navy's use of the Blackhawk, you know, or the Seahawk is I, I'm just so excited about it. Like, man, I want to fly that. Like, it just sounds like a really cool mission. It's got a lot of capability. And, you know, when you compare yeah. it to what an average army Blackhawk is doing, it, it is a completely different story. Yeah. It, and I, I will tell you, that was the great thing about flying sixties and lamps Mark three and the Navy was, uh, every day was different. You know, you, yeah. it, there was a, we had a bunch of different missions we did. Primary was, uh, anti-submarine warfare and anti-surface surveillance and targeting. But we also did a lot of comm relay and, and other things, vert rep, you know, moving stuff back and forth between ships, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. But the downside is um, that uh, taking off from the back of a frigate um, with a loaded down 60, you lose your engine, you're done. You're going in the water. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. And, in fact, we had that happen. Um, maybe I'll tell you that story a little later. Um but uh, that happened the opening day of Desert Storm. So oh, wow. we'll go into that one later. Yeah. That was one of those crazy stories. Um, so, yeah, we a very capable platform. Really enjoyed flying it. Um, the downside to the 60 coming from Hueys and Kiowas and Cobras is the visibility is not that great looking out the front end. Mm. Um, we had a lot of electronics on board the aircraft, which made it heavy. We maxed out at 21.7, 21,700 pounds. At the time, and then they upped the weight allowance to like twenty three thousand pounds, which is just fat. You yeah. know, uh, coming off the deck off off a frigate, you're only seventeen feet off the water anyway. If you lose that engine, you you've got really no scoop out capability. You're you're going to go in the water. So yeah, and and the, you know, and you bring up a good point because I've I've certainly ridden in the back of my fair share of hawks, and uh, it's always terrifying sitting in the back and watching them land. Because you know that the pilots can't really see where they're going. You know, you've got the crew chiefs just <laughs> hanging out the side, uh, telling them stuff. And uh, and, yeah. and I just I can't imagine landing on those small little decks with everything pitching. And, you know, everyone gives props to the fighter guys for landing on carriers. But I'm just like, I'm thinking about the helicopter landing on a frigate. And it's like, wow, I can't imagine. I'll tell you what, it's probably one of the most challenging things you can do. Uh, and when I was flying them, we weren't on goggles. So we'd bring wow. that thing aboard at night, uh, pitch black, you know, nasty weather. And uh, it was, it would definitely get you going. You know, it would get the heart rate going. Yeah. All you had was uh, basically lineup lights and what's called an SGLI or a stabilized glide slope indicator mm. and uh, SGI. And, uh, so you, you pretty much had to stick to your numbers. It was an instrument approach all the way down to the deck, basically. Wow. So it made, uh, it made it challenging. Now, I heard something, maybe it was in another episode. Now I can't even remember where I heard this, but something about hooking up the helicopter to sure. and dragging it so onto that's the deck? The, 
Yeah, that's called a RAST system, Rapid Assist Secure and Traverse. So basically what this thing is, is it's a big, probably a five foot by five foot box uh, that's about maybe eight inches tall. And the inside of the box is hollow, right? Mm. Uh, but it has these two beams that close into the center like a bear trap. Okay. Okay. So on the underneath side of the 60B, you have what's called the main probe. And it's uh, probably maybe eight inch in diameter metal probe that extends down from the belly. Um, and what you would do is when you come in and land on the boat, you'd land over that trap uh, and you would have what's called an LSO or a landing safety officer. You'd have a little, uh, a little bubble pop-up window that he's sitting in the flight deck and he can see where you're at. He helps guide you into that trap and then the beams close and they secure the helicopter to the deck. Hmm. Now in extremely rough weather, what they would do is they would have what's called a haul down cable. This haul down cable would be spooled out on the flight deck uh, you would fly over the flight deck in the helicopter. You would lower down a cable from the helicopter called the messenger cable. Mm. That would go down to the deck, and you'd have two sailors come out. They'd grab that cable, hook it up to the haul-down cable. You would now pull the haul-down cable up into the helicopter, lock it into that probe, and then you would uh, try to center yourself over the trap. The, the landing safety officer would apply 3,000 pounds of pressure on that cable. Hmm. So it's not quite enough to pull you down, but it's enough to guide you down into the trap when the deck is really rolling, pitching and rolling. Okay. So we would use that very rarely. Um, you know, it's almost like a, a rite of passage or, you know, almost kind of like a manhood thing, you know, right. You want to get aboard without having to use that thing if at all possible. Yeah. We had to keep current in it, but you know, if you know, you, you catch a lot of crap from your buddies, if you couldn't get it in the trap, right. <laughs> yeah. man i'm i'm sweating just thinking about it so i, I can't imagine <laughs> doing all that yeah yeah it's uh it's fun times during the i tell you what flying off a small ship during the daytime it's a blast yeah other than nothing to see but water but it's a blast coming on board and taking off is, is a lot of fun until it gets dark then it's not much fun and then when the ship starts moving around that makes it even less fun because Typically, like I said, you're 80 to 120 miles away from the aircraft carrier or anything else. Uh, and if you're independent steaming out in the middle of the Pacific, you've got nowhere to go. You've got to get it on board or else you don't get pizza. Yeah, that's stressful just thinking about it. And every Navy guy I've ever talked to who, who flies, doesn't matter what they fly, that, that seems to be the, the recurring themes. Like the, the, the scariest, hardest, most dangerous part of being a naval pilot is landing because you've got to yeah. land on these incredibly small areas in the middle of nowhere and you, you can't mess it up. <laughs> There's nowhere else to yeah, go. Exactly right. You know, you, uh, having flown in combat, I'll take that over flying back on board the boat at night. Uh, I, I definitely would, oh. really. I mean, it's that, it can be that stressful. So um, I, I do want to circle back to one thing I meant to ask you. You were talking about the sono, the sono buoys and all the weapons and stuff. Did you guys also have yeah. something that you could? I've seen aircraft where they could drop something, but it was it was still attached to the aircraft, some sort of buoy or sonar. Yeah, so we had a couple other things. Uh, the 60 Romeos have what's called a dipping sonar, okay. which is a it's like it's got like, I don't know, uh, 5,000 feet of cable or some crazy thing. Yeah. On it. 
where you can lower this hydrophone into the water and it can it can work passively or actively in other words it can listen to sound coming in or it can ping uh, and send sound out and wait for reflected energy to measure it that way we did not have that in the 60b okay but we did have something called a magnetic anomaly detector hmm. which if you look at the starboard side near the tail of the 60b you'll see a little yellow and red missile looking thing that's actually a big magnetometer. So what we do is once we get airborne, uh, we'll spool out the cable on that thing. It, it usually hangs about a, 180 feet below the helicopter. And when you're moving at about 60 to 80 knots, it's going to fly back behind you a bit. Hmm. And we would use that to develop our attack criteria on a submarine. So when you're, it's like a heartbeat monitor, right? So you're looking at this monitor and it's flat line. And when you fly over a large ferrous object like a submarine, you'll get like a big heartbeat uh, bleep in the line. And that's, okay, I just flew over something big and metal. So you would start what's called a mad hunting circle. A mad is a magnetic anomaly detector, like I said. Mm. So you're flying along looking for the submarine. The, uh, the sensor operator in the back of the helicopter, when he sees that uh, thump in the, in the flat line, he calls out madman, madman, manban, uh, madman is what I'm saying. <laughs> He'll call that out and you'll immediately go into your turn and start working that circle. So you'll develop a course and speed because he can mark that first madman shows up on your tactical plot. And then the next time you get one, you get another point. So, you know, you've got two points and now you've got a course and speed. Uh, and that's how we develop uh, attack criteria also completely passively. Did you guys carry extra fuel tanks or just internal? Uh, you can carry an external uh, fuel tank. We typically did not. I know the uh, the um, Foxtrot and Hotel versions of the 60 that the HS squadrons uh, that were typically based on the aircraft carrier, they would carry them all the time, particularly guys who were doing plane guard. In other words, they're out flying in circles for like three or four hours waiting for the jets to come back and land they would uh, they would have the the tank on so they could stay on station okay and they're just hanging out in case somebody has to ditch or something yeah okay. correct okay. so boring job when you guys were doing yeah i can imagine um when you guys were doing the uh the sonar stuff so somebody was on board the aircraft they're the ones interpreting all that data it's not being sent back to someone else and they're doing it and you're just carrying their mail well, that's a, that's a great question because we have a data link. It was called Hawk, the Hawk link, a very, uh, very specific to the SH-60B. So it wasn't a link 16 between the ship and the helicopter. It was the Hawk link and it was highly directional and it would work. You could get a, a good directional link up to 80 or 100 miles depending on the atmospherics of the day. But um, we would gather that data and it would go down the link to the ship. So you would have a uh, basically a sonar uh, operator in the ship, mm -hmm. basically analyzing that data. And our sensor operator on the, sh on the helicopter would also analyze the data. They had two different types of displays. Okay. Um, so the guy on the ship could do a better analysis mm -hmm. because he was getting all that raw data and he could see a lot more. Whereas the sh on the helicopter, we had a smaller system, so not quite as powerful, but we could still do a pretty good job. Sure. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, all right. So you said you, 
would you say 88 was when you got out to the fleet? Yep. I was winged in 88. I went through the fleet replacement squadron and uh, showed up at my first squadron in 89. Um, and that was HSL 44 in Mayport, Florida. And uh, immediately uh, pretty much went to sea. So I showed up uh, as a young ensign there in 01, 0 nothing basically. And uh, I came into the squadron. And I, I happened to have a degree in technical journalism from Oregon State. Hmm. So they immediately made me the public affairs officer, which sucked balls. <laughs> you know, I really don't. <laughs> it's not my thing anyway. Right. But uh, the good news is, is the guy who I relieved as the public affairs officer was um, down in Roosevelt Roads, uh, Puerto Rico, part of a workup. We call it a workup prior to deployment. Mm. He decided he was going to climb a tree and get a coconut and put Rome in it, right? Well, he fell out of the tree and completely shattered his arm, oh. and uh, I got called. I had been in the squadron for maybe a month, and they're like, hey, you're good. You're getting deployed. So I had like maybe a day to get my crap together, uh, get packed, and I got on an airplane, and I met the detachment out at sea and uh, went on deployment. It was a pretty historic deployment. This was in 1989. Uh, we actually went into the Mediterranean. Uh, this was aboard the USS Kaufman, which is a frigate, uh, and we did nothing but hunt Soviet subs the entire time. Wow. We tracked a lot of Soviet subs. And back then, we weren't uh, we weren't buddy buddy or anything. You know, they were the bad guys. Right. So we tracked them. Um, made a lot of cool port calls. That's uh, one of the pluses of the Navy is you get to go to a lot of cool places. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the most interesting port calls we had was we went into the Black Sea and we went to a town called Sevastopol, which is part of the Soviet Black Sea fleet. Hmm. They had not had anybody from the American Navy or anybody else and pull into port in Soviet Union in like 45 years or whatever it was. Oh. Uh, so we got to pull into Sevastopol and uh, got to go see a bunch of Soviet ships and submarines and helicopters. I actually got to sit in a, uh, in a hormone helicopter, which is kind of like their ASW helicopter, hmm. uh, and talk with a Russian helicopter pilot uh, on board the Moskva which was an old ASW carrier, ASW uh, cruiser, basically. It was like, uh, had a huge big flat flight deck on the back and looked like a, a destroyer on the front, but it was a pretty cool ship. Uh, so we got to spend some time uh, checking them out. Uh, so it was a pretty neat deployment. But the thing is, uh, and this is how I got my call sign, um, I came back from that deployment and basically, you know, your first deployment, you're a second pilot. You're what we call an H2P, helicopter second pilot. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't sign for the airplane. You're not the pilot in command or anything like that. You're basically, and you would swap back and forth between being the guy driving the helicopter and the guy doing the tactical side. Every day you'd swap back and forth. Sure. When you get back to the squadron, you do what's called your hack board or helicopter aircraft commander board. Okay. You go through the hack board and, you know, they, uh, they give you a check ride, oral board and all that stuff. And they say, okay, you're good to go. You can sign for the airplane. You're now an aircraft commander. Well, I was still like, I think I was an O one with about right. I had been selected for O two, uh, when I made aircraft commander, which was super, super early. I think I was the youngest aircraft commander in the Navy at that time. Hmm. So I got the call sign Dookie Russell. 
boy pilot. And it was based, it was based on the whole Doogie Howser boy doctor yeah. kind of thing. Okay. It was popular at the time. So that's, that's where my call sign came from. Okay. That's pretty good. Well, that's a pretty uh, amazing first tour. I mean, yeah. And that was only the first deployment. I mean, almost immediately after that, I made hack and I got put on a second uh, detachment on board the Halliburton. Halliburton was a frigate also. And uh, we were, um, we got uh, sent over to the Persian Gulf on this deployment for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Hmm. And uh, we operated with the America Battle Group, uh, did a lot of work in the Red Sea, and then moved into the NAG, the Northern Arabian Gulf. Uh, worked with uh, a lot of different ships, worked with some Army guys flying Little Birds as well. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, did all that crazy stuff up in the northern gulf uh so this was the uh the iranian gunboat operation prime chance time period that was right yeah right okay. uh, it was 1990 to 91 right okay so the op opening days of desert storm was like january 17th of 1991 i think it was yeah yeah okay so and, and uh, you stayed there for desert storm yep and a little bit afterwards, and uh, and then came back. Um, middle of ninety, oh, maybe it was ninety. Yeah, it was middle of ninety one, mid to late ninety one. Got back, and uh, and I was made the assistant operations officer for the squadron, and uh, and then I selected to go to Naval, Naval Postgraduate School to get my master's degree. So I so I did that next. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about Desert Storm. Uh, anything sure. kind of exciting there? Like, like, kind of just walk us through that experience. Sure. So it was it was interesting because I think at the time we had like five aircraft carriers working in the Persian Gulf, yeah, busy. which is just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you consider the Persian Gulf is only about 130 feet deep, hmm. most parts of it. So we had submarines in there too that were longer than it was deep. Wow, in the Persian Gulf. So we had a huge uh, number of aircraft in the Persian Gulf. Uh, we would basically have an aircraft airborne 24-7, 365. So we were a two-plane detachment, so, and we had six pilots. So we were constantly, you know, you go out, you do two bags, so basically about eight hours worth, and you'd, you'd hand the aircraft over to the next crew. they go out and do two bags. And about that time, you'd roll the other aircraft out. The third crew would get airborne. The second aircraft would come down. They'd do all the daily and turnaround inspections on that. And we did that for like three or four months, Gosh. just nonstop. I can't imagine the maintenance keeping up with that. It's crazy. You know, I got I, I to gotta tell you, the maintainers that we had, these, these guys, they would bust their ass. They were nonstop. And they were basically what we call port and starboard. In this case, they were 12 hours on, 12 hours off. Yeah. So they would do... Uh, full-blown, full-phase maintenance on these aircraft at sea, changing engines, yeah. pulling rotor heads, all of that on a ship at sea, um, you know, in a tiny little hangar. Yeah, so. that's that's no joke. I mean, that's a lot of work and, and trying to keep that much going in, in such, I mean, with two aircraft. And I'm sure you guys were swapping aircraft out from other ships at some point. Yep, yeah. yep. In fact, uh, um, we lost an aircraft uh on the first day of uh of the ground war and i'll save that story for later if you want 
or I can tell it now. Either way, I've got a hundred different stories. <laughs> yeah, but, go ahead I mean, now. Tell us. Okay, go. so it was one of those days. Uh, it was the opening day of the ground war, and, and I will tell you that we were told um, in the Navy we have what's called a rock po, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it stands <laughs> for, but what it means is these are the missions you are authorized to do with this particular aircraft. Mm. So in the Navy. Uh, for the combat search and rescue role, we were only authorized for daytime unopposed combat search and rescue. So in other words, we can't go doing CSAR at night and we can't go doing CSAR when there's any kind of a, a threat. Right. Well, going into the first day of the ground war, we got a message that, hey, we fully expect to have between 16 and 20,000 casualties. Uh, for the opening day because we're going to do an amphibious landing in Kuwait. Yeah, That was what they were putting out to everybody. And we got told, we don't give a what your Iraq post says. You're going to go do CSAR on the beach, pulling guys off the beach uh, of Kuwait. So we're like, holy, okay, this is the real deal. So anyways, we're getting ready to do that. And, and long story short is that didn't come to be because the whole Schwarzkopf end run all the way around and down from the north if you if you study your history about mm -hmm. desert storm uh caught the iranian or the iraqis completely by surprise and ended up being you know a pretty substantial victory for us but up until that point they were telling everybody even in the united states side uh fenric friendly forces that hey this is what's going to happen and if you'll recall this was a huge coalition of people. We had Germans and French and Brits and all kinds of different ships out there uh, doing stuff, uh, supporting this coalition. But anyways, the first day of the, of the war, I come back from doing, I guess it was maybe uh, about an eight-hour, uh, two bags of um, flying from basically midnight. No, it was from, uh, I guess it was eight o'clock. Whatever it was, I don't remember the time, but my la I landed at about 1600, mm -hmm. the local time, right? So I'm doing a hot swap. So basically the bird is sitting on the deck spinning. It's in that trap and uh, secured to the deck with that. Chocks and chains are on. Now they come out and they fuel us up. They load us up with whatever ordinance we need. And I turn the bird over to my two roommates, right, mm -hmm. in, a, in a ship. Um, on a frigate, you get three officers in a room that's probably – the size of a normal bathroom in a normal home, right? right. So you, you're stacked up three guys in there. So my other two roommates, I'll just call them Don and Tony, they get into the aircraft, right? And at the time, we had what was called, we called THP-3. So the 60 had what's called a tape handling package unit that you could load tactical data and stuff like that. Well, we didn't use it in the 60, but we had a Sony Walkman a cassette player that we would jack into the ICS. And I had this big box of cassette tapes, right? And, you know, the guys jumped in the helicopter. Hey, can we use your tapes? Because, you know, all we're doing is flying around doing radar sweeps. Because by now we've got air superiority. Right. We get the occasional small boat comes out. We take care of that. Um, but it gets pretty boring sometimes. Sure. So, uh, and we've been told, yeah, we're probably not doing this big, full-blown combat search and rescue thing. So, kind of backed off from that 
So yeah, sure. You guys want to take my tapes? Go for it. You know, I've got a hundred tapes, all of them with Doug Russell written on them, right? <laughs> which will come to come into play later. <laughs> so, anyways, they jump into the aircraft, and I'm standing there in the uh, port helo hangar, looking through the little uh, the little um, window there, watching them take off. So they pick up, and then the sixty, you pick up off the deck, uh, you you back up. You're in about a twenty fifteen. 20 foot hover you kind of back up the glide slope a little bit mm -hmm. put in a pedal turn to the left typically uh so the pilot still has a visual side he's, he's sitting in the right seat he he can see the ship right he pulls power transitions you're looking for three rates of climb and airspeed off the peg and all that stuff and your stabilator on the 60 also automatically programmed so you want to make sure that's programming mm -hmm. properly so anyways, these guys do their pedal turn, they pull power, number one engine explodes. Mm. About 30 feet of flame comes out the back end, and they kind of just kind of, wow. you know, settle into the water. And uh, I see this thing hit the water. By now, I'm out on the flight deck. The crash alarm is going off. And I'm watching the helicopter. It hits the water. It rolls to the right. I see the left-hand door pop open. And as it rolls over to the right on its belly, it, the tail comes up in the air. All the blades have just flown everywhere. Yeah. The tail rotor spins like three times, and the thing just goes bloop right down to the bottom. Right? Wow. So my two roommates and an air crewman are in this thing. And I'm like, oh, boy, this is bad. So the ship goes to GQ, basically. They're launching the motor whaleboat and everything, and I see one head, two heads, and then finally, the third head pops up out of the water. Mm. So everybody makes it out. So here's what happened in the helicopter. Don, who was in the right seat, they hit the water. They hear the explosion, right? So they both jump on the controls. We're fat, right? Like I said before, it's a fat helicopter. Got all this equipment. They're wearing chicken plates, yeah. right? So you can either wear that chicken plate. The way I wore my chicken plate was I had my SV2, which is your survival vest with your flotation and everything. Mm -hmm. I had that on, and then I would set the chicken plate on my lap, and then I would put the straps for the seat over the chicken plate. Mm -hmm. So when I released the straps, the chicken plate would fall away, and I could get out, mm -hmm. right? Okay. They both had the chicken plate on and then put the SV2, the survival vest, over the chicken plate oh. and zipped it up that way. And that's how they had it. So they hit the water. Don cycles his emergency window release in the right seat, and the window doesn't come out because all that water pressure on the outside of the helicopter is holding that window in sure. because when you hit that release, it pops out. He can't get it to go out, so he's he now is kicking the window as hard as he can to get out. Mm. He eventually kicks the window out. He swims out of the cockpit. Starts to sink because he can't get rid of his chicken plate, and he inflates the flotation. He pulls the two beaded handles. Inflation inflates around his neck and his chest, and he pops up to the surface, right? The guy in the back, Scott, he had what's called a HEADS, which is a helicopter emergency egress device, which is a little tiny oxygen uh, air bottle, basically. It's got about 3,000 PSI of air in it. Yeah. It sits in a little vest pocket. He sticks that in his mouth. Uh, he just rolls out his window before the aircraft basically even hits the water because <laughs> he knew it was going bad. Sure. He gets out, no problem. Well, Tony is in the left seat, and that's the side that had the door pop open, right? Mm. 
So he has now taken his right hand, reached over his head, grabbed the, the door sill uh, of the helicopter on the left side of the door sill, and he is pushing himself with his left hand out of the seat when the door slams shut on his hand. Okay. So now his hand is trapped in the door. His helmet is now pinned between the basically what we call the B pillar, the, the, the door uh, pillar, and the seat. So his helmet's stuck. Yeah. And he told me, he said, well, I guess I'm done. This is how I die. Wow. And the aircraft is going down, and then he starts thinking about his wife and his kids and everything. Yeah. He says, screw that. I'm not, do- I'm not dying this way. He manages to pull his hand out of the door. He gets his helmet undone because his helmet is now jammed. He unstraps his helmet, swims across cockpit, goes out Don's window because the door's now slammed shut. He comes up out of the water, um, can't reach his beaded handle, so he can't inflate the lobes on his survival vest. He gets about two nostrils and half of his mouth out of the water, and he goes, help. <laughs> and then he starts to sink. Don, because he came up right underneath Don. Right. Don grabs right. down, grabs him by his hair, pulls him up, and then inflates his, his lobes for him. So Don saved Tony's life. Uh, we get the motor whale boat in the, which is like, it's just a boat, a boat on the boat, yeah. a little tiny boat. It gets underway, gets, pulls the guys out of the water. We get them on board. You know, everything's good. Uh, he's still got that. His wedding ring was uh, crushed mm. or uh, it, uh, not a wedding ring. He had a different ring on his right hand and that thing is crushed. They had to cut it off his finger. Mm-hmm. He still has that. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first day of the ground war for us. And of course, in any kind of uh, aviation mishap, you know, we have to send a flash message, which means you have to get word back to all the people um, about what happened within 15 minutes of occurrence. Yeah. So we send this flash. I send the flash message back because I'm the operations officer for the detachment. I secure all the maintenance records in case it was something we did wrong, uh, all of that stuff. And you know, this is my first wife. Uh, I'm, I'm on wife number two, wife number last. But anyways, <laughs> my first wife is watching CNN, and here's General Kelly. It's the first day of the ground war, so there's a billion things going on. Yeah. And he's just reading through these reports of different things that are happening in the war. And he gets to the one about uh, us, and he goes, uh, aircraft on board USS Halliburton crashes in the water, unknown any survivors. Next story. Gosh. Boom. Right. So my wife back home thinks that I'm dead yeah. or, you know, and it's a small group, you know, we're sure. talking, there's only six pilots. So, you know, two of them are dead. Yeah. That's what they think. Yeah. So anyways, that was that story. It turns out everybody was fine. Guys were back flying within about four days. Um, and we continued on. We ended up cross decking another helicopter on a ship that was leaving the, the Gulf. So we took that helicopter on board, so we had a full board thing. But interesting thing is we put a buoy on top of where this helicopter was. And like I said, water's only 130 feet deep. We go launch every day, and you could see that helicopter on its belly all the way down at the bottom of the Gulf. You'd fly over it every day see that thing. Really? Yeah. So the war ends. They pull this helicopter out of the water, and it comes up, and they find cassette tapes with my name written on them in the engines, 
in the rotor what? system, in the tail. <laughs> yeah, these things had floated out of the box and worked their way into every nook and cranny. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I had to talk to the mishap board about, uh, hey, Doug, is there a reason your crap is in every part of the helicopter? Yeah, that was a fun time. Wow. So, I mean, uh, what what did they determine happened? So the helicopter, so the Navy has, at the time, had Commander Naval Forces Atlantic and Commander Naval Forces Pacific, ComNav Air Lant, ComNav Air Pack. We were Air Lant. Air Pack knew that the engines had a defect in them that every once in a while a vibration would occur in one of the in one of the uh, turbines, mm. uh, and it would basically just explode and tear the engine up. Wow. Air Pack didn't tear tell air Lant about it so ended up being that was what caused the mishap uh, so it wasn't really counted against anybody um but uh i think that mishap probably led to a lot of things being consolidated also yeah so it it's unfortunate that it takes those things to to cause change i i was actually just a investigating officer about two years ago for a a fatal blackhawk crash uh in louisiana and uh mm-hmm. It was, you know, kind of, kind of the same thing. There was a, a known uh, defect in in the engine, and uh, you know they were going through the process of changing these engines, and and you know it was something very minor, but it just you know time ran out on this particular aircraft. So, um, yeah, I, I've seen video of aircraft going into the water. There was there's one you've probably seen it too. I think it's an old CH forty six trying to land on the back of a, a frigate or something and, and it gets its tail wheel caught on oh, some yeah. sort of rigging. And I mean, it just, it just disappears into the water. And yeah, you know, and I think for the layperson, you think about it, you think about the aircraft hitting the water and just kind of floating there or something, but uh, they just go right down. Yeah. It's like dropping a brick in the water. Really. Yeah. I mean, they, they, the water comes rushing in, uh, you know, we all go through that water survival training, the yeah. helo dunker stuff. You had to do that all the time, every four years at a minimum, okay. or prior to every deployment, kind of a thing. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy stuff. Yeah, we uh, you know, we had to do that too in the army. But you really didn't have to do it the way you guys do and, and get recertified. I, I only did it the one time my whole career, but um, yeah. we just going through. You know, I can picture some of this panic because it doesn't matter if it's training or real life like when you put somebody underwater and put them in these weird situations your body just just reacts and and does not like what's going on um but i remember practicing all those things like you said kind of going across cross cockpit and everything and those heeds bottles you know the one thing that they uh the problem with the heeds bottle uh, probably not operationally but certainly in training is they they don't always fill them back up because the heeds bottle i think is about two minutes of air if i remember correctly yeah and exactly. uh, I remember going through a scenario, you know, in, in the dunker training, you know, they put you in this big cockpit looking thing and they dunk you in the water and it may roll over or they may blindfold you and they do different things. And in this one scenario that we were doing, we had heads bottles and I took one breath of that thing and that was it. It was out. And, <laughs> and you know, and there's nothing you can do at that point. And you're just kind of. That's a great stuck. feeling, huh? <laughs> oh, God, just terrible. But um, yeah, that's no joke, man. That's I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very glad to hear they made it out of that because that's just tragic oh yeah gosh yeah wow that's incredible crazy times yeah, yeah yeah okay well so any other excitement in desert storm or did it finally taper down after that um you know it it was interesting uh i had another instance where i was flying uh, uh the night 
shift basically i came back and landed we were getting gas it was like three o'clock in the morning pitch black so we're sitting on the flight deck uh with the with the fuel hose stuck up uh stuck into it and uh, i'm sitting there and i see something in the peripheral vision out to the right you know and, and like i said it's pitch black out so i see what looks like maybe a little pin dot of light and i look and it's a flipping missile right mm. and it is flying right at the ship and it literally goes right over the helicopter wow. right over the helicopter and i'm like holy <laughs> we're getting shot at so I, I told them to disconnect us and i wanted to get the hell off of the boat because yeah. right? that's one big target so we get launched we get off and it turns out Nobody knows what happens, right? So I come back and I land and it's like eight o'clock in the morning. I walk into the wardroom, which is where the officers eat their meals. Mm. And, and I got my bowl of cereal or whatever. And the, and the captain of the boat comes in, really good guy. Um, he sits down and says, hey, Doogie, how's it going? I said, good, sir. How about that missile last night? He goes, what? I go, uh-oh. <laughs> so apparently nobody on the boat told him that we almost got hit by a freaking missile. Wow. He went ballistic. Yeah, the, he fired like three dudes that day uh, when he found out about it. You know, I felt a little bad, but then again, you know, yeah. freaking job, you know. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So apparently that was a missile. We don't know what it was. It might have been a Scud. We're not sure. Um, but it, it uh, went right over the flight deck, right over the helicopter. That's incredible pretty crazy stuff yeah and you know there's all kinds of stuff I, i'm sure you know you have the same kind of story stuff that nobody ever hears about yeah. that goes on and uh you you're just you tell your friends you're like oh boy, you know that didn't happen I'm like dude trust me some crazy stuff happens yeah just some crazy stuff well i mean i mean this is the gold bond because this was the whole point of me starting this podcast was you're exactly right there's so many stories um that a lot of us kind of grow up and and it's like well that was a thing, you know, and, and, you know, a missile flew over you and, and probably yeah. to you, you know, at the time, of course it's exciting, but you know, 10, 20 years later, you're like, yeah, that was a thing that happened, but no, like, that's not just a thing that happens, you know, that, that, that right? needs to be something that somebody talks about and, and remembers. Um, yeah. so yeah. And, and I think desert storm is one of those where there's so much that went on, but it happened in such a short period of time that yeah it just a hundred days or something yeah and i mean in, in the ground war was what like three or four or something so yeah um pretty short there's so much that's wrapped up in those hundred days that uh that no one really has pulled the thread on it at least from the helicopter side so um yeah, yeah we'll we'll have to kind of circle back in the future and explore some more of that because I, I do want to move on and um Sure. Uh, so desert storm, we got through that. Well, I mean, what was, did you have any other big sort of deployments? I mean, obviously you guys are always, you know, quote unquote deployed to sea, but, um, sure. what other kind of adventures? Sure. So I went to PG school after that, uh, got a master's degree in information technology, which is how I ended up being a cyber guy now, mm. but, uh, did that in Monterey at the Naval postgraduate school, which is a pretty cool place to be. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I went to a destroyer squadron to do what they call a disassociated sea tour, which means I'm not in a flying billet, but I am doing a Navy job that has some aviation nexus. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm, I'm doing that job. And uh, I was on board the Abraham Lincoln for that uh, 
for that deployment to the Middle East uh, into the Gulf. So was that like staying at uh, the Hilton after staying at Motel 6 when you're coming off the little ships and going on a carrier, or is it pretty much the same? Actually, you know, I will tell you that the carrier sucks (laughs) compared to a small boy. And here's the reason why. Uh, It's 6,000 people, okay? Um, You're never going to know everybody. On a frigate, you've got 180 people. You're going to know everybody. Uh, on the carrier, it's loud all the time. Yeah, I lived right under not, right underneath the number two JBD, Jet Blast Deflector. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was where my room was. And uh, all the piping for that JBD went right through my room. So it was super freaking loud, particularly if there was an EA-6B on the cat, which is the loudest airplane that uh, the Navy had at the time, hmm. just super, super loud aircraft when it's on the cat ready to launch. And of course, you know, the JBD going up and down and guys shooting off the bow and everything else. It was just miserable, noisy. Um, and I was on a shoe staff. Uh, what that means is I was on a surface warfare officer staff, not an aviation staff. So I was, uh, not flying. I got to fly a couple of times, got to fly. I got to do, uh, Got to fly in an S3 front seat in the FC, so I got to do a, a launch and a trap hmm. in an S3, which was pretty cool. Um, and I got to fly with the helicopter squadron on board through the, the 60 Foxtrot and the 60 Hotel. Uh, but overall, I'd say that tour sucked because I wasn't in a squadron, sure. you know. Um, but after that, I, uh, I went to the wing, which is kind of, they own all the squadrons. So I went to helicopter anti-submarine squadron light wing pacific out of san diego and i was the tactics and training officer there until i selected for 04 and then when i made 04 i screened for department head and i got sent to hsl 51 out of atsugi japan so i did my department head oic tour out of atsugi japan and uh did a lot of flying there we were forward deployed so we were always at sea out of the 36 months there uh, I spent 30 of those months at sea. Wow. Uh, just being on different ships. I think I deployed on like maybe five or six different ships. Most of them were frigates. Went out on a couple of destroyers. Uh, never did a cruiser tour. Uh, I've been on one for short periods of time, but never did a deployment on a cruiser. Um, did that. We spent a lot of time off the coast of Korea, uh, north and south. Uh, doing stuff there. We worked with the Army a little bit, too, out there, vectoring them in on different targets. Um, Also uh, spent some time down in East Timor uh, flying SEALs around. Hmm. And then uh, when I completed that tour, I went to uh, Naval Forces Europe out of London. So I was the exercise director for Naval Forces Europe. So I I would... uh, Basically, plan and execute 200 exercises a year, um, all of them from little small level unit level exercises to full blown multilateral joint exercises involving literally thousands and thousands of troops and sailors and everything else. So that's kind of what I did. So, there. so Monterey, San Diego, Japan, London. I mean, thank you for your service. Yeah. I mean, this was really. Oh, thanks. Very, <laughs> I, I'd be lying if I told you. <laughs> It was fun, though. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. There's a, a lot of things you miss um, when you're in the Navy. You miss a lot of birthdays, funerals, yeah. weddings, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, you also get to do a lot of stuff that most people don't. So, um, 
after London, I got orders out to Fallon, Nevada. You know, I had to look on a map to find out where the hell that was. Yeah, I've never heard anything good about Fallon. Well, I tell you what, man. Uh, here's the thing. I got orders to Fallon. They, they asked me what I wanted to do. I said, I'd love to go back to a flying billet. They said, well, we've got a billet out at Fallon where you'll be flying uh, helicopters as SAR squadron there. Mm. You'll run the SAR squadron. I'm like, great. Sign me up. Oh, by the way, where's Fallon? They said, oh, it's, it's in Nevada. I'm like, Nevada? What's the Navy doing in Nevada? There's not even water in Nevada. Yeah. Well, there is. Uh, it's where Top Gun is. It's where Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center is. Uh, now it's called something different. Uh, but they have Top Gun, Top Dome, uh, the, uh, basically the helicopter version of uh, Top Gun. Um, all of those big postgraduate level, basically, aviation type schools are right there in Fallon. Mm. And uh, they said, you'd be the executive officer. So number two guy there. And I got to basically fly just about every day. And uh, I got to run the base, which was a blast. And, you know, here's a funny story. You know, we get orders to Fallon and we're in England and we're like, well, I guess we better go check it out and go buy a house or whatever. So wife and I get on an airplane, we come into Fallon, um, we land in Reno and we get a car and we're driving to Fallon, which is 70 miles east of Reno. So, which means it's basically almost dead center in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, uh, we're driving out there and it's, it's like January 2nd and it's, it's dry, it's drab, it's nothing but desert. Yeah. And the further we got from Reno, the bigger the tears coming out of my wife's oh. eyes were. And she's just like, oh, my God. She goes, where did the nuclear weapon go off? I said, what are you talking about? There is no life out here. There had to have been a nuclear weapon yeah. that went off out here. Oh. But we got out there. Um, I will tell you it was the best four years in the military I ever had. Hmm. And when we left, my wife cried just as hard leaving as she did going uh, because – I think really in the military, what makes it is the people. It's not necessarily the place or what you're doing, but a lot of it has to do with the people you're working with. And uh, I just had a fantastic group of folks I was working with. Um, just really a phenomenal tour. You know, I got to fly every day. I got to run my own little squadron of, of Hueys that we were doing high altitude mountainous search and rescue. Um, did a lot of rescues while I was out there. Uh, just a really fantastic tour, a great way to end my tour in the Navy. Yeah, that sounds like a good gig. Yeah. No, it's good. It was. So then you, you retired and you transitioned into the civilian life, kept flying with the police, yeah. um, mm -hmm. which sounds like great timing on your part as far as the you know the one guy was leaving and, and they needed yeah. to fill the slot. Yeah, it was. You know, I was at a meeting, uh, the – the hospital in Reno was getting a helo pad on the roof. So they had the big meeting between all the air units in the local area that might deliver people to that unit. And uh, I happened to be there and I saw these three cops over in the corner and they were kind of looking at me, kind of whispering back and forth to each other. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go find out what this is about. So I go walk up and I introduce myself and uh, the guy who is, who's now uh, passed, he died from cancer. But at the time is, uh, great guy, Tom Delaney. He was an Army aviator uh, who flew um, just about anything, really. He was just a phenomenal pilot. Uh, he was a Warrant 5, uh, but he uh, he was also a deputy and the chief pilot there. And he says, hey, uh, 
uh, you know, I'm Tom Delaney. I've met you once before. I said, yeah, you look familiar. We'd met somewhere doing something. And he says, hey, when are you retiring? I said, well, it just so happens I'm retiring in about six months. He goes, you want to come fly for us? I'm like, uh, does a chicken have a pecker? Yeah, yeah I want to come fly for you, you know? <laughs> so we, uh, we got that all coordinated and then I got recruited. They originally recruited me to be a civilian pilot. And I said, well, you know, in order to figure out what the guy on the ground's doing, shouldn't I have to learn what the guy on the ground's doing? They said, okay, well, do you want to go through the academy? I'm like, well, yeah, I guess so. So I got, I went through, it was about a four month academy, um, police academy. So I was the old guy in the group. I was 44, turned 45 during the academy. And everybody else was 22, 23, you know. And, of course, you know, at that time is the generation, the Xbox generation. So they all, you know, they, let's just say that I don't think they expected the physical performance that I was able to provide because, you know, I'm not an Xbox guy. You know, right. I still had to maintain my health and physical condition. So, you know, they were all made fun of me until I started kicking their ass in the runs and, yeah. and the fighting and all that stuff. So, <laughs> you know, I gained a little bit of respect that way. And uh, I got done with the academy, was uh, was uh, commissioned as a deputy, if you will, and um, went, uh, went to patrol training. Did that for about 12 weeks where I uh, drove a patrol car, had my uh, training officer sitting with me, and I did regular street cop stuff. And, uh, and then after I completed that syllabus, I went out to the hangar and I stayed there and uh, flew lots and lots out there. Um, I probably threw in the 10 years, I probably got about 4,000 hours of flight time. Wow. Uh, so not too bad, about 400 hours a year I averaged. Lots of uh, Kiowa time and lots of Huey time out there. So we would use the Kiowa for regular patrol type stuff, me and a tactical flight officer. You know, a tactical flight officer would operate the FLIR mm -hmm. uh, and the radio, the cop radios, and all that stuff. And uh, and then uh, in the Huey, we would use that for search and rescue. Um, basically, they didn't have much of a SAR program from the air side until I got there, and I kind of took what I what I had built over at Fallon. I brought that along with me, yeah. and we ended up uh, doing a lot. I think I ended up with about three hundred rescues in those ten years. Wow. Um, we get a lot of pickups and stuff like that, but these are like, had we not picked these guys up, they were going to die. So um, I had about 53 of those when I was out at Fallon in the four years I was there, but I came to, came to, um, came to uh, Washoe County Sheriff's office and, and I brought that program along. We trained up our, our, we had a volunteer group of guys called the hasty team. So they're basically kind of like your technical search and rescue experts. I turned them into air crew. I, I put them through an air crew training syllabus that, that I built and uh, put them through a hoist training syllabus that I made. And uh, we got them fully trained up in hoisting and uh, we started saving people. And, you know, it was just a, a real blast. We, we had a, a great team, great group of guys and all super dedicated. And it was a lot of fun. It was a great, great mission. You know, the downside was the politics, you know, uh, law enforcement is rife with it. So, you know, for every good, there's a bad. And, uh, you know, after 10 years, I was, I was I'm tired of fighting tooth and nail to keep the program running hmm. because, you know, when they always go for the low hanging fruit, when there's a budget crisis and, you know, a helicopter that's burning 1200 bucks an hour, yeah. they, uh, they will quickly shut that thing down. So, 
I got tired of that battle and decided I needed to take a break. Um, so now I, I do um, some consulting, aviation consulting. Uh, last month I trained up uh, Sacramento uh, Metro Fire guys in uh, high altitude um, mountain flying and power management techniques. Have you ever been to HATS? No, I right. never made it out there. Okay, yeah, fantastic course. And, and let me tell you, for a Navy guy to call an Army course fantastic, <laughs> it's, it's by God yeah. a, a fantastic course. <laughs> I learned so much uh, there in Eagle, Colorado, uh, going through HATS. HATS stands for High Altitude Aviation Training Site. And uh, it's where you go, and they you take your own helicopter there, and they train you in power management techniques. And it is phenomenal. Yeah. Just one of the best courses I've ever taken. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. We we sent, you know, typically just send our instructor pilots out there because trying mm -hmm. to send a whole army squadron, you know, you send 90, 100 yeah, people, it's just not going to happen. But uh, um, when I was at Bragg uh, before we flew to or, or went to Afghanistan, we you know, we've got the, the Smoky Mountains, which are in nothing compared to Colorado. But we would set up some training out there and, you know, the IPs would go to hats and then they'd come back and teach them those techniques. And then when we went to Afghanistan, you know, ironically enough, I was uh, commanding guys up in the mountains and we were routinely up at, you know, six, seven, 8,000 feet. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a school of hard knocks at that point of learning how to, to fly. And luckily, you know, our job, we didn't have to land. So that was uh, a benefit. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah. yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about that course. Yeah, I tell you what, you know, here in the Sierra Nevadas, uh, the mountains up here, it's a lot like Afghanistan. Um, we've got mountains. Well, you know, Stead Airport, where we operate out of, that's at 5,000 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, so the mountains around us go up to 10, 12, 13,000 feet. Um, you know, Lake Tahoe's up in our area. So we spent a lot of time up there, and uh, you're dealing with a single-engine Huey helicopter, um, and it's you better know your stuff because there's no quicker way to die than to not uh, know what you're doing. Yeah, the power management difference uh, just from a, you know, again coming from Bragg, which I, th I think it's like 400 foot, you know, MSL, and then yeah. when we were in Tarrant it was around 4,500. You know, just that mm -hmm. difference of trying to take off on certain days and just being too heavy, you know, or trying to land at a certain time. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a big difference and. Uh, with a single engine aircraft, like you said, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that go wrong and not a lot of wiggle room to, to keep it in the right. Oh, you bet. Yeah. So I, I do a lot of, uh, instructing with that. I'm a CFI, rotorcraft CFI. So I do a lot of mountain flying instruction, uh, using those techniques, uh, and it, it pays off. I'm also an MVG instructor. So, huh. um, that's, uh, that's what I do now. Uh, on the civilian side, I'm, I do cybersecurity for this major defense contractor. Um, I'm currently putting in for a job as their crisis uh, management guy, mm. so we'll see if I get that. But uh, yeah, I uh, I keep flying. Of course, you never fly as much as you want to oh. until you're flying too much. But, uh, <laughs> but I have my own aircraft. I've got a little experimental uh, Zenith 750 Stoll. Uh, aircraft it's uh it's ugly but it's beautiful you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. it's uh it, it'll take off in 200 feet and land uh in about that as well uh, a little underpowered up here at 5,000 feet it's only got a 120 horsepower engine on it but uh it's still a lot of fun to to dink around in and then of course you know i get to fly that cobra helicopter out of carson city uh periodically which is just a blast yeah i'm looking up the zenith stole to take a look at that that's uh, that looks like that would be i mean, I mean you could probably 
is that you could land that anywhere, can't you? I mean, just with pretty those much. wheels. Look, I mean, I don't know if you have the same kind here, but it's got some pretty I robust do. wheels. Yeah, I've got the the kind of tundra tires they call it, and uh, it's uh, it's got those slats on the leading edge of the uh, of the wing, so it uh, it'll get off the ground at about twenty eight knots, and uh, it'll it'll climb out at about forty five, and uh, it it'll land at about the same. It stalls right at twenty eight knots. Wow. Uh, with those slats so you know it's a super survivable airplane i mean if you're going down uh you know you can get it pretty slow before you hit which is yeah. i'm told that's what you want to do so <laughs> that's a good authority that you want to be slow yeah, yeah. <laughs> crash as slow as you can yeah. what uh, so fly all the way through it yeah so tell us about the cobra i mean how did you get involved in all this sure so uh i had a mechanic working for me out there at fallon a guy named tim uh, who uh, was in the Marine Corps. He got out of the Marine Corps and started working as a, uh, a mechanic for the civilian maintenance uh, they have for the shore installations uh, for the helicopters. So uh, it's a squadron that has a civilian company doing their maintenance and all that stuff. He was a mechanic for them. He was also um, basically a, a QA rep, a quality assurance rep. He was also is also an AMP mechanic with his uh, IA certificate. So he he's about as high authority as you can go when it comes to helicopters. That uh, the IA uh, ticket and I forget what IA stands for. It's something assurance. Um, anyways, it's a step above AMP mechanic. Mm. So he uh, he uh, works part time down at this museum, and they got a hold of this Cobra, and they were going to put it together. And they said, uh, "Hey, we need somebody to fly this thing." And he calls me up and says, "Hey, Doug, do you want to fly Cobra again?" Yeah. Does a chicken have a pecker? Yeah. I'm I'm all over that. So uh, we go down, and it's basically a skinny Huey. You know, yeah. I've got uh, you know a couple thousand hours of Huey time, so. Uh, it wasn't that hard to do the transition. It's got a SAS in it that the the old UH-1H uh, doesn't have, but um, you know it's it's not hard at all. The only downside to the Cobra, I would say, is you can't see your skids from the cockpit. Right. So you kind of kind of hunt and peck for the ground a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you get used to how high you are off the ground compared to a Huey, but um, you know, it just takes a little bit of getting used to, but it's, yeah. it's a beast, man. It's, uh, it's got that, uh, 703 engine in it, uh, which I think the army called the, it wasn't the 13 B maybe it was the 17 engine. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a, it's a beast of an engine. It puts out 1800 shaft horsepower, I believe it is. And it's, uh, it's got the, the Cobra tranny. It's got those big, big wide blades yeah. you can look it up it's the cactus air force museum out of carson city and there's a picture of it in there it's red and white because that was the original unit was out of alaska that this helicopter was from and they they were painted red and white for whatever reason mm. like an arctic paint scheme mm. and uh so i i got a chance to fly it and uh i've been flying it ever since i've probably i don't know i've got maybe a couple hundred hours in them now Wow. So, yeah, we get to go out to air shows in the summer. Of course, this summer sucked but because uh, of COVID. But uh, hopefully this next summer coming up, I'll, I'll be able to fly that thing around some more and show it off. Yeah, that's that's an incredible opportunity. That's great. Yeah, yeah, I was, I, was, I was surprised. You know, I was really lucky. You know, I was worried 
when I first got asked it, I called the uh, I called around to find somebody who was current in the Cobra, and I got hold of a guy who flew with the Forest Service uh, because they were using Cobras as a um, as a platform uh, for firefighting. Right, yeah, so yeah. they would. They would be up there. They're called the Helco, so the helicopter coordinator. They would be up orbiting at about 2,000 feet, and they would vector in the helicopter. So I did a lot of far, firefighting when I was at the sheriff's office also. Mm. So I was carted, carted as a fire pilot. But uh, so I got a hold of this guy, and I said, hey, dude, I, I'm, I was wondering if you'd be willing to come down and check me out in the Cobra. He says, well, tell me what else you've been flying. I gave him list of the aircraft and times that I've been flying. He says, well, you've got plenty of Huey time. I go, yeah. He says, it's nothing but a skinny Huey. You're fine. Yeah. Have fun. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how that worked. Wow. You know, oh, yeah, it was awesome. pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can relate to what you're saying though, about not being able to see the skids. It was same when I, when I went into Apaches and you know, same with the 58, I could, I could look right down and see, and then you get in the Apache and you, you can't really see below you. So kind of yeah. hunting around and hoping you're in the right spot. And, yeah. So in the summer, we pull the doors off the Huey and the Cobra and the Kiowas and, mm-hmm. and fly that way. That's the only way to fly, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unless it's super cold. But I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll throw the doors back on. I don't care if someone wants to call me a coward. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does get a little cold sometimes up here in the Sierras, too. So Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, that's incredible. Well, that has been a, a whirlwind of a career. I mean, you've had a... Yeah, I've had a good time just listening to it because I can only imagine how it was to live it. Oh, uh, it was a blast, and and you know I tell you what, um, I, you know, people say, hey, thanks for your service. No, thank you. I mean, thanks for the opportunity. Really, yeah. I mean, uh, just uh, the the incredible opportunities you get in the military and in the civilian world. You know, it's just amazing. And if you're given, you know, somebody once said, hey, if somebody offers you something and you're not sure you can do it, say yes anyway. And give it a shot, you know. Um, I firmly believe that. I've uh, I've had a fantastic flying career. Yeah, I've come close to dying a few times, but who hasn't? Yeah. You know? And and anyways, how do you want to die? You know, yeah. do you want to die? You know, sitting in front of your computer and stroking out one day because you lost in Minecraft or something, right. or do you want to? You know, or do you or do you want to live life? You know, live life. You know, you only get one turn in the barrel, so let's make the most of it. You know what's wild is uh, I didn't even notice it until I was editing uh, that he had flown that aircraft where the engine had failed. So uh, yeah, I didn't even it didn't even I didn't even catch that part. So listening to that again, just uh, it's incredible. And I, I had something similar happen where I'd, I'd flown an aircraft and uh, it was acting a little funky, and we and we brought it back and uh, and reported it and uh, like I think same day somebody somebody took that aircraft and kind of ignored some of the warnings and. Uh, and took off with it and uh, the hydraulics failed. So um, these things happen and they were fine, you know, so that's why I can laugh about it. But uh, yeah, it's just wild to, to think that, that 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 would happen right after flying. It makes you start thinking too, like, wow, you know, what, what did I miss and what, what situations would that have happened? You know, maybe, I don't know, just makes you think. So it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a, it can be a scary job. So I really appreciate Doogie coming on and, and sharing it with us. He, he was a lot of fun to talk to, and, and honestly, I, I probably could have spent another three or four hours. I, I definitely, uh, in the future, want to have him back on and uh, and share some of those, those stories. So again, check out that Cactus Air Force Museum that he was talking about. Uh, we'll try and get some pictures up for that and uh, take a look at that Cobra. 
So I still need to find my way out there and uh, get a flight with that thing. That, that would be pretty cool. Um, yeah, so Doogie also shared some other stuff with us. Uh, our bonus content for this one is just incredible, a lot of fun. So again, if you are, uh, you know, in a position to financially support the show and you want to take a look at that, uh, that bonus content, just check out our Patreon page. And I'm just going to share some of the topics that we talked about here. Uh, so I just, I kind of write down little, um, I don't know, little notes to myself, uh, to kind of push the, the, uh, the bonus content and, and kind of throw it out there on Facebook and, and the discord and stuff just to entice people like, Hey, this is what you could be hearing about. So here are the notes that I wrote down, huh? Uh, bloody bird strike. Uh, you should always have your MVGs and that was a crazy story. And of course, uh, how to fist fight in your undies. So if you're interested in any of those things, take a look at our Patreon page. Again, it's linked on our website, thelowlevelhellpodcast.com, and you can uh, support the channel and get access to that and all the other bonus content that we have. So again, every interview that we've done since, I want to say, episode five has uh, bonus content, so it's a... it's good. It's a good time. Um, it's a little bit more uh, candid, I guess you could say, than than the normal interviews are as well. All right. Well, again, we're just gonna cut this one short. Um, don't have anybody co-hosting with me this time, and uh, that's fine. It's a little awkward for me. It's uh, just <laughs> talking to myself, but um, hopefully you guys can can put up with all my my nonsense and and just enjoy what you did come here for, which is some great stories from some great pilots. I just want to thank you guys for watching again. Thanks for all your support so far. Uh, looking forward to some great episodes. You know, I was mapping out uh, all the people that I've talked to as far as guests, and I mean, it easily took me up into July, August time frame, and and that was not even including the the sort of maybes that I've gotten or you know the sort of the the half-hearted uh, yeses that that I've received. And it seems like every day I'm I'm talking to somebody else who's leading me to somebody else. So we've got a lot of stuff lined up here for the next several months, and um, I'm sure that's going to grow as as the word gets out and, and talking to people. So please continue to to listen and share with your friends uh yeah so i think that'll be it for this episode we'll see you guys again in two weeks and just a reminder that the comments made by the guest and the host are our own and do not represent the department of defense or any private businesses we appreciate you guys listening appreciate all your support so far keep sending in those questions and we'll talk to you guys in two weeks take care Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.